First uh, Samuel chapter 18, 19, and 20. Don't worry, we're not reading all of it. We're going to be reading the first few verses of chapter 18. I'll remind you where we are in the story of God and His people. God has seen fit to give the people what they want and have given them a king. A king like the other nations have, is what we're told. And so the people have been given Saul as a king. And Saul has consistently failed and gone against the will of God. And so they have taken away, God has taken away from Saul the kingdom. So Saul is still king, but God has anointed another. He's anointed David. And after he has anointed David, we have the incident, the, the, the story that we looked at last week, a story in which many of us are familiar, the story of David and Goliath. And so where we are today is in the immediate aftermath of this story of David and Goliath. This immediate aftermath of the story of, of only one God's anointed being willing to stand up and go out and confront the Philistine. So we're in, like I said, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to read the first nine or so verses together. Will you stand with me as you're willing and able? When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as he loved himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, the women came out from the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourine, with shouts of joy, and with three-stringed instruments. As they danced, the woman sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but have only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So, David, so Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we come before you this morning, as we turn to this story Saul and David and Saul's family. God, I pray that you would show us what you have for us in it. I pray that your meaning, that your words would come through. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God, and our King. Amen. Sit down. 
You may sit down. You can sit down. We find ourselves in an interesting place in this story. There's no record, I mean, perhaps because it was done in secret, there's no record that there's any tension between Saul and David prior to this, even though David has been anointed as king. Again, probably because it was done in secret. If you remember, Samuel was very concerned about it being done in secret. And so there's this incident where, where this young, young man, the, the runt of Jesse's litter, comes out and defeats the Philistine. And, and the people love David. Saul's own, own son, Jonathan, loves David. And so Saul puts David in charge of the army, and the people love him for it. They love this decision that Saul has made. But then this, this ugly thing, jealousy, begins to raise its head. This, this, that ugly green monster begins to raise its head. You know, Scripture has a lot to say about jealousy. Even in the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, I mean one of the commandments is, you shall not covet. But, but what is coveting, really, but sort of being jealous of what someone else has? Recently, a, a mutual friend of mine on social media, who is a, who's a pastor, um, posted a, a, a picture of, of, his new, of his new boat. And I asked the question, I know that the Ten Commandments say that I shall not cover my nephew's donkey, um, does that include boats? Um, and of course it does, right? And coveting is not looking at something someone has and saying, oh, that's nice. I, I would love to have something like that one day, right? Coveting and jealousy is, is being consumed by this thing. Being overwhelmed by it. Letting it begin to control you. And that's what happens with Saul. See, Saul begins, we, we see right here, right there in verse 8, he's already beginning to see and understand that the kingdom is slipping away from him. As well he should, right? I mean, the last time he saw Samuel, Samuel said to his face that God would rip the kingdom away from him, just as Saul had ripped Samuel's robe. And, and so... And, and so somewhere, Saul must know that it's only a matter of time before his reign will end. His reign will end because, because someone else will come along and throw him out or because he will die. But the time is going to come when his reign will end and it and in his family will not continue. And he begins to see in this young man, this son of Jesse, God's plan for what is coming next. We said earlier, right, Samuel has anointed David. This is one of those times where because we're dealing with the Bible in translation, we miss some things. I think you, you may know this, right? You may know that the word Christ 
means the same thing as Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek, right? It's, it's, it's not Jesus' last name. Jesus' parents were not David and Mary Christ, right? What, what, when we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Anointed One. Because both Messiah and Christ mean Anointed One. The one that has been anointed by God for the carrying out of a certain task. The one who's been anointed by God for the salvation of God's people. And so, there are many little m, lowercase m, messiahs before Jesus becomes the capital M, the messiah. Right? We've talked about how how Jesus is the perfect example, the perfect encapsulation of what God's king looks like. And so David, you know, and, and Saul and all the other kings, you know, are held against that standard. And they point to Jesus. And in the same way, these lowercase m messiahs, anointed ones, point ultimately to the ultimate, perfect, final messiah. Just as every sacrifice that's made in the temple points to the ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Just as every great high priest points to the final, perfect, great high priest, Jesus. And so, we must understand that right now, in this story, David is God's lowercase m, Messiah. He is going to be the Savior at this moment in time, not eternally, but in this moment in history, He's going to be the Savior and the the one who serves God's people. And so what we see here, right, is we see Saul whether he knows at this point or not, and probably does not, because he probably would even be more insistent on David's death than he is. But Saul begins to see that God is the one that David, that David is the one that God has chosen. He begins to see, even if he does not know for a fact that Samuel has poured oil out onto David's head, he begins to see and understand that David is God's Messiah. And what we have in chapters 18, 19, and 20 is this unfolding of an extremely dysfunctional family and how the father versus the children react to God's Messiah. And so we see, even here in these first nine verses of chapter 18, we see a man who has come to hate the coming Messiah of God. He he hates the one whom God has chosen to rule and to reign over him. He hates the one who's going to replace him, even if he doesn't fully comprehend yet what's happening and then, by contrast, his own family members, his, both his son and his daughter, 
love, honor, and covenantally commit themselves to God's Messiah. And so Jonathan and Michael, and we're going to get into a little bit more of that story here, right? But Jonathan and Michael, David's, uh, Saul's son and daughter, they have this distinctive commitment to David. And so it serves for us as this, as this picture for all of those who will embrace God's plan as opposed to those who will reject it. They, they establish the pattern, the, the, the sign of Jesus and the people who will commit themselves to Jesus as opposed to Saul, who shows us what those who won't commit themselves to the Messiah look like. You know, it's, it's, it's not surprising that Saul would want David to be part of his royal household, right? I mean, he's a young, promising warrior. He's done this amazing thing in taking out Goliath. The people love him, right? I mean, what do we do when, when there's somebody who comes along who the people love and and we're elite, right? We, we, try and, we try and co-op them, right? We try and bring them in. We're, we're unfortunately here, I mean, we're already in the 2024 election cycle, but soon it's going to get even worse. And this always happens, right? This is why politicians always try and rely on celebrity endorsements. People that people love, and we're going to co-op them and bring them in. I don't know if any of you remember what may be the single most cringe political ad of all time. It comes from the 2020, 2004 Democratic primary in which retired General Wesley Clark was running for office and he was, they were doing an ad for a, 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 a thing on, that was going to be on MTV. And it was shortly before this that the hip-hop group OutKast had split up. They, well, they had, excuse me, they had not split up yet. They had recorded joint solo albums. And so this retired, very white, very not hip-hop, army general from Arkansas makes this ad in which he says, I don't care what people say. Andre 3000 and Big Boy aren't breaking up outcasts. And it was just cringe. It was just awful, right? Because he was trying to co-op this thing that people loved to seem cool and hip, and he came off the exact opposite. And then, of course, in a couple of months, they broke up. We do this, right? We, we, we try and bring in, so it's no, it's, no, it's no surprise that Saul tries to do this with David, that Saul tries to bring David in, make him, make him part of the cool kids club, right? Co-opt him. But, but what happens, what happens is it's so clear that David is God's man that even as Saul tries to, to co-opt him, and even as we, as we read over and over and over again through the rest of 1 Samuel, David does nothing but try and honor Saul. It's unsurprising that Saul begins to experience these, this jealousy Right here at the beginning. I mean, they're returning from the field upon which Goliath fell. 
And he already begins to have jealousy from that day forward. You know, I mean, the women of Israel are, are, are singing David's praises, literally, in the street. And it, it really upsets Saul. It really causes him to be, well, as our text said in verse 8, furious and resentful. It, it, it's right after this, David's playing the harp for Saul in his, in his court that Saul attempts to kill David for the first time. He, he attempts to pin him against the wall with a spear. You know, jealousy is a terrible emotion. Jealousy is this, is this scab that if you, you keep picking at and it turns into a, a festering sore. Jealousy is, is, is a hunger that you just can't satisfy. You eat and you eat and you eat and you, you feast, you gorge yourself on jealousy and it just makes you feel emptier and emptier. Jealousy is a, is a terrible and a harsh master. There's a reason that almost universally we understand that jealousy is bad. And, and so there's this, there's this, this problem, right? Saul is jealous of David. And so Saul begins to conspire. I mean, there's this first outburst. But then Saul begins to conspire against David. And, and he offers David, he ends up offering David actually two of his daughters. Now, if we remember, if we cast our mind back to the story of David and Goliath, the one who was to kill Goliath Part of the reward was marrying the daughter of the king. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that Saul offers his daughters in marriage to David. But it's not that he offers his daughters in marriage to David. It's that he's going to use his daughters to get to David. Now David escapes the first time because he just doesn't marry um, Saul's eldest daughter. But, but then he, he offers his daughter Michael to him. And, and David marries Michael. You know, he's, he's, he's giving this appearance, right, of, of honoring his previous commitment that was made when, when Goliath was on the field of battle. He's, he's giving this appearance of acceptance and of love. But but one of the things that we've already learned about Saul is that Saul's appearance of godliness can be deceiving. That, that Saul can put on this mask of godliness and yet at the same time deny the power and the sovereignty of God. And, and, and so now he puts on this mask, this, this feeling, this this. this this robe, this costume of affection for David, but what he actually has brewing in his heart is hatred and jealousy and murder. 
You know, he, he says in 18, verse 21, about Michael, he says, I, I will give her, Michael, to him, David, Saul thought, and she will be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, you can now be my son-in-law. Now, I know that we like to joke, right? I mean, we, we all have in-law jokes. It's sort of a, sort of a trope, right, about, about your in-laws and, and everything else. But, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess no matter what kind of relationship you have had, no matter how contentious a relationship with your in-laws you might have had, I don't think any of us have ever been in a situation where our in-laws hated us so much that they offered their child to us for the sole purpose of trapping us in such a way that they could kill us. Right? I mean, this is where we're at. I mean, this is what Saul was doing. I mean, Saul was willing to, to use his daughter, both of his daughters, in fact, in this way. That's, that's rough. It's rough for David. But think about Michael. Think about his daughter. And what we see just here in chapter 18, we see three different plans, three different attempts to murder David. Uh, the first is that, is that incident back in verses 10 and 11 that we mentioned where David throws, excuse me, Saul throws his spear at David and attempts to, to skewer David against the wall. The second is this, where Saul attempts first to give his elder daughter, uh, Merab, to David. Um, and, and the idea there is that, is that he, will, he will have to fight the Philistines. And so, and in that process that he will die. Actually, let's just be honest, what's Saul doing here? Saul's pulling a David. Saul's pulling what David's going to do later with Uriah the Hittite, right? But he's, he's doing it to David now. Maybe it's where David got the idea. But, but that's the plan. He's going he's gonna to send David out so that he can marry Mary. And then, and then finally, this, this plot with Michael at the middle of it, a very similar plot to that plot with Merab. And so we saw, right, the, the first one David, David sort of gets out of because he's a spry young man and he sort of jumps out of the way and knows how to make himself scarce while Saul is in a rage. The, the second one he gets, he gets out of simply by not marrying Merab. The text isn't really clear what happens there and why he doesn't marry her, but he doesn't. Now the third one is interesting. This third one, he gets out of this plot centered on Michael because he fulfills Saul's request. But Saul does, Saul comes to David and he says, hey, you can marry Michael, but what you've got to do is you've got to bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, what should be obvious to us is that Philistine men were not going to give these up voluntarily. And so there were, he was going to have to kill a hundred Philistines. That's really what it is, right? That, that's really the bride price that Saul has set. You have to kill a hundred Philistines in order for you to marry Michael. And, of course, Saul's plan is, is that no one's going to be able to do this simply by going into Philistine territory, 
in order to do this, that David will be killed. And so what does David do? He goes, he goes into Philistine territories, and he comes back not with 100, but with 200. Now, I know that for many of us, this is uncomfortable. We don't want to think about the details of this. But, but this is one of those times where, where the text is giving us an event, not because it's prescribing it for us. God does not want us to go out and collect 100 or 200 or any number. What the, what the text is doing here is it's, 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 it's reflecting and, and communicating what's going on in this honor-shame culture that they live in. What, what's happening is, is Saul's trying to shame David into David doing something that will get him killed. And what David does in, in response is that he honors Saul above and beyond not only what Saul deserved, but what Saul even asked for. That's part of the point here, is that when our enemies come against us, we should not respond in shame, but we should honor them even more than is asked of us. And so he comes back and give credit where credit is due to Saul. He's a man of his word. And David and Michael are covenanted together in marriage. Saul's not done yet, as we will continue to see, as you continue to see through chapters 19 and 20, he continues his murderous ways. He, he, he begins to recruit his family and, and the members of his household to kill David. And so from that time forward, even though David is in Saul's house, he's a target. We might ask ourselves, why? What's happened? We go back to the very end of chapter 18, verses 28 and 29, we read that Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, David, Saul was David's enemy from then on. See, what's happened, Saul's beginning to lose his family to David. He's already lost Jonathan. So now he's starting to lose Michael and the rest of his family as well. We see that Michael has committed to, has, has loved this coming Messiah of Israel. And, and so after the, the last attempt on his life in verse in chapter 19, we read that David leaves and he goes to Ramah, where Samuel is. If you remember, Samuel has removed himself from Saul's household, from Saul's court. And so Samuel is at Ramah. And so David flees to Ramah and stays with Samuel. And he recounts to Samuel everything that Saul has done. And while he's there, Jonathan comes to him. Saul's son comes to him. Actually been sent by his father to kill him, but he comes to him. And he vows to protect him from Saul. He says, come back, and, and I will protect you. You know, back at the beginning of, of 18, we read that, that Jonathan entered into covenant with David. And, and, and here in, in chapter 20, in this story, in this element, we see that Jonathan renewed that covenant. And, and we see that, that Jonathan will not betray David, that he will remain true to him. He swears loyalty to David. He defies his father's plan. And so what we 
we now see is that Saul's family has rebelled against his plans to kill David. What we see is that, that Saul does not have the support of, of the Lord. He doesn't have the support of his family. He doesn't have the support of the people. The people sing praises to David over Saul. Michael and Jonathan, his, his daughter and his son, make covenant and commitment to David instead of Saul. And, and, and God sends evil spirits to Saul. Saul's jealous heart has eaten him up, has split his family, is splitting his kingdom, and is, in fact, driving him mad. We can, we can learn some lessons from Saul's jealous heart. The first is this. We can, we, jealousy appears on the horizon of our lives when we are not content with what God has proclaimed over us. Saul's kingdom was over. David's kingdom was on the rise. Jonathan saw this and knew this, and Michael knew this and saw it. They got what was going on and what God was doing. And, and remember what this means for Jonathan. For Jonathan, it means that he will never be king. Jonathan is giving up a future kingship to honor David and to honor what God was doing in David. Jonathan embraced God's plan. He, he killed the jealousy that could have been inside himself. That reflection of the jealousy of his father. He, he killed it by embracing and committing to God's plan for Israel. Jonathan was more interested in God's kingdom over his own, as opposed to Saul, who was more interested in himself, more interested in his kingdom and his power over God. The second thing that we can learn is we can learn that jealousy reveals our deepest love. Jealousy reveals that thing that we really love inside of ourselves. What we see is, is that Saul really loves himself and his own power and his own glory and his own honor more than he loves God's plan and God's kingdom. It wasn't Yahweh. It wasn't the Lord that was the center of what Saul was seeking. It was himself and his control, and his power, and his glory. Let me ask you a question. As a congregation, we would love to see renewal. Right? We would love to see revitalization. We'd love to see people come to faith. What happens if it happens in another place? Do we rejoice? Are we thankful for it? Do we pray for it? Do we pray that God would continue to be at work there? Or do we think it should be happening here? Why is it happening here? If it's not happening here, it's not real. It's not good. Would you resent the anointing of God and the salvation of the lost if it was happening at other churches? Or would you embrace God's work and rejoice in his plan? The third thing we learn is this, is that jealousy is closely related to fear. We're told multiple times, um, even in chapter 18, that Saul feared David. Saul was afraid of David and what he meant. 
it meant that others loved David. It meant that David would be king. It meant that David would be great. It meant that God would anoint him. And, and, and so what all of this meant is that Saul was going to be in the background rather than the foreground. And the thing that he feared the most was losing power and losing honor and losing glory and losing his kingship. And so this young man comes along who is God's plan. And they're jealous. He's jealous and resentful. Our life does not have to be filled with fear and jealousy. And, and it happens all the time. Right? You're, you're at work and somebody else comes along and they get the promotion instead of you. Right? Or, or your neighbor is business is really successful and so they they're able to buy the 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 new beach house or or the new boat or the new cabin in the mountains or or whatever and it can eat us up so the question we have to ask ourselves is what can kill us and the only thing the only thing that can kill the jealousy and the fear that can eat us up is the love that's found in Jesus the anointed. The only thing that can, that can purge us of the bile of jealousy is the gospel. That in Christ, there is nothing that we can do that can make us more. But that also, in Christ, there is nothing we can do that can make us less. That Christ is all we need for everlasting joy. That, that what Christ has done for us, what Christ has been to us, we need to be to others. measure Christ's compassion by the power of the cross and the resurrection. Only the power of the gospel kills fear and jealousy. And what we see is we see that Jonathan knows the power of the gospel. A thousand years before the perfect Messiah comes, Jonathan understands that he was deeply loved by God and cared for whether he was king or not. He knew that God was his everlasting joy, not his father's crown on his head. Jonathan knew that God had been gracious to him and his family, and so he was gracious to David. And Jonathan measured compassion by God's overwhelming kindness. And Jonathan, a thousand years before Christ, we see one of those saints that the author of Hebrew tells us about. We, when we, when we experience, we all have been, when we experience debilitating jealousy, when that little green monster is eating us up, then we must embrace the gospel. 
Brothers and sisters, you can be confident in who you are because in Christ, you are free to be fully yourself. Now, don't miss those two words, in Christ. Jonathan knew that he would never be king, but he embraced who God had made him to be the gospel free Jonathan. We, we learn in the gospel and in Christ, we learn that our identity is, is not bound up in our profession or in what others say about us. That our identity is found in what Christ has called us through his gospel. To be deeply loved, to be forgiven from sin by his blood on the cross, to be valued and to be set on his purposes. Only the power of the gospel will kill jealousy. So, if, if today you're, you know, the one way that you can kill it is to pray to Jesus. To pray for his gospel, to allow him to remind you of his love, of his identity, of his purpose for you and happens in a garden outside of the It only happened through Christ. Jonathan was set free and it was the power of Christ. David will be set free when David sins and it will be the power of Christ. Our hymn of invitation this morning is He Lives.